Well, good evening. Get everybody to come in and quit having so much fun fellowshipping, and we'll get ready to get started. The only um, the only announcement that I know of at the moment is this coming Sunday. Plan on bringing uh, some uh, uh, salad or dessert, and sign, there's a sign-up sheet back in the kitchen. We'll be having a, a, a covered dish dinner here at the church immediately following the uh, morning worship service, and then after that we're going to have just a, a time of prayer. We'll designate certain people who will uh, lead the congregation in prayer, and this will be a good, important time for us uh, on Sunday. I don't think there are any other announcements right now. The, oh, yeah, the media group, the media committee will be meeting the next Sunday uh, immediately after church. Normally they've been meeting the first Sunday. They'll meet the second Sunday in August because of the uh, cover dish uh, dinner next week. I think that's it. seems like there's something else kind of nagging at me, but I don't know what it is, but it doesn't involve the whole congregation. <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Jeff, you got a update on your nephew? Okay, for those of you who are listening, his, his uh, nephew Jarrett was, in, uh, was wounded in Afghanistan, and uh, they extracted, he was just saying they extracted the bullet. There's no major organ damage or any other damage, and uh, the thing is to just fight for, I don't know if I want to. Okay, yeah, per- Prayer support. Like a lot of guys who get wounded over there, they don't want to come back home. They want to recover and be reassigned to their unit. So uh, we can we can be in prayer for him. Also pray. You followed some of the updates on Jim Speedy. He's apparently uh, doing a little bit better. So we need to continue to uh, pray for him. Uh, let's have a, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give each of us an opportunity to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study the Word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come to you in prayer. We're thankful that you watch over us, you protect us. We're thankful for the way you have watched over Jarrett, the way you've protected him, thankful that his injury was not life-threatening. We continue to pray for his recovery. There won't be any infection, any other problems, and that he will be able to recover and be returned to his unit. Father, we continue to pray for Jim Speedy also. We pray for his recovery, doctors, wisdom for the doctors as they treat uh, his uh, all the different things, problems you can have with infection and everything else. Uh, after the surgery, in the next couple of weeks, he'll be in the hospital. We pray for that his strength will return, and we know that he and Linda are just trusting in you and that they are completely relaxed uh, in terms of your will for their lives, and so we just continue to pray for them and their uh, testimony. Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that we may be able to focus and think and uh, understand the things that we go over, and we can see how significant this is as it's part of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just looking at this, I think I pulled up the wrong. I did. Pulled up the wrong lesson. There we go. 35. Okay. There we go. All right. We are in the fourth chapter of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. 
Now, remember the context. Acts 3 and Acts 4 work together and fit together. And you have to understand them in the same context. The events uh, beginning in chapter 3 relate to the healing of a lame man outside of the outside of the temple at the uh, gate called Beautiful. This is a lame man, man who's been lame, crippled from birth. He is known by everyone who is in Jerusalem. He is a fixture, you might say, outside the gate Beautiful. Uh, he's 40 years old, and for probably most of his adult life, he's been sitting outside the gate begging alms. This was his way of uh, making a living as... Uh, Jewish worshipers would come into the temple. They would give uh, their uh, tithes to him and give gifts to him, alms to him, and he, that would sustain him. Now, Peter and John come, and Peter looks at him, and on the basis of Peter and John's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they announce to him that he is healed and tell him to stand up and walk. And then Peter doesn't wait, waste any time. He reaches down, grabs him by the arm, and pulls him to his feet. And suddenly his strength is brought to his legs, and he is leaping and bounding, praising God throughout the temple. Pointed out that it's not on the basis of his faith that he was healed, but on the basis of the faith of Peter and John. This led to a message, a sermon by John, in which John is going to give another opportunity to the Jewish audience listening to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. We went through all the various uh, passages related to that. And his focus is on God's plan and God's promise of a Messiah to Israel, starting with reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapter 3, verse 13 pointing out the reality that they had denied his claims and denied that he was who he claimed to be and that they had therefore authorized by choosing uh, Barabbas instead of Jesus, they had authorized his execution and that the irony of this was that he was the true prince of life and he would be killed. But this was, as he had pointed out in his uh, sermon in Acts chapter 2, the will of God, and that God had foretold these things, verse 18, by the mouth of all of his prophets, that the Messiah would suffer. And we looked at various passages, such as Isaiah 53, uh, in terms of that. And then Peter drove home the point, and that was that they were to change their mind and turn back to God, change their mind about Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, turn back to God, so that the times of refreshing would come. His point is that the messianic kingdom, the coming of the Messiah in glory rather than to suffer, but the king, coming of the king to, to reign is conditioned upon the turn of the Jews to accept Jesus as Messiah. And until they do that, which is what Jesus had said at the end of, of uh, Matthew chapter 23, that until... They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, referencing him, uh, that he would not return. And that this is the precondition for the establishment of the second coming. The announcement in Matthew 13 and the parallels in the other gospel passages that uh, this generation of Jews were under divine discipline because of their rejection of the Messiah still stands. But the message of hope doesn't change. They have to turn and accept Jesus as Messiah before the millennial kingdom will come, the messianic kingdom will come, called the times of refreshing in verse 19. He then goes to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and following, in his quote from Moses, that there would be a prophet like Moses. And I pointed out that in Deuteronomy, that there's a clear statement at the end of Deuteronomy that Joshua was not a prophet like Moses. He was a prophet, but not like Moses. That there was no other prophet in the Old Testament like Moses. We went through those comparisons. And at the end, again, uh, 
Peter hits home the point in verse 26, to you first God having raised up his servant Jesus. This is about the third time he's mentioned the resurrection, which by now has gotten the Sadducees who were really the power base uh, supervising everything that went on on the Temple Mount. They are upset. And so chapter 4 opens up with four groups of people present there as they spoke. The priests who are almost all Sadducees, the captain of the temple guard, almost all Sadducees. There were uh, 24 groups of Levites who served on the temple, and they were overseen by this captain of the temple who is second uh, highest-ranking Jewish uh, authority on the temple mount, second only to the high priest. So there's the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, and they come out, and they are... Uh, as verse 2 says, they are seriously upset and aggravated that Peter and John have the audacity and the temerity to come here on the temple and to proclaim Jesus as a Messiah and to say that he rose from the dead, even though they know because of what had happened just about six or seven weeks before that seven weeks before that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The evidence was clear to them that the tomb was empty. They knew that the tomb was empty. They had been warned that the disciples might try to uh, steal Jesus' body, and so they had put a guard and called for a Roman guard as well on the the tomb, and yet the tomb was discovered to be empty. The stone was rolled back by the angels. So they they had irrefutable proof of an empty tomb, and yet they're still denying that because they have, as we'll see, a pre-set, determined uh, commitment that resurrection is impossible. And we call that a presupposition. A presupposition is a, you might say it's almost a pre-rational commitment to something as true that shapes how you interpret things. And this is their, their viewpoint. And so because they are set on negative volition to the truth, they're refusing to accept or to properly understand or interpret evidence that is before their very eyes. So when they uh, heard Peter and John preaching the resurrection from the dead, they then arrested them, put them under arrest, and and incarcerated them in one of the uh, rooms in the temple overnight until they could convene the Sanhedrin the next day in order to try them. There was a progress report given by Luke in verse 4 that th- uh, 5,000 males, that's not women, children, just 5,000 males, so it could have been as many as fifteen to 20,000 people uh, who heard their message believed, and that's that belief that is the key. This is all that is required in Scripture of salvation is to trust in God's provision of a Savior, which is Jesus Christ. And then, starting in verse 5 last time, we began to look at uh, what took place in the uh, council chamber as the council of 70 plus the high priest gathered together. Annas is called the high priest here, and he is uh, the one who's recognized by the Jewish authorities as the high priest, as I pointed out last time. The Romans did not want to allow a high priest to have that, that kind of power that's embedded in the Mosaic Law, which appointed the high priest for life. So they would only allow a high priest to uh, be in power for a certain amount of time. And so the actual high priest was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas is mentioned as the high priest in the Gospels uh, in terms of the crucifixion of Jesus. So he is the uh, du jour, as it might be, high priest according to Roman law and Roman appointment, but Annas is the de facto high priest. He's the one that the Jews look to as the uh, real and legitimate high priest, both of whom were uh, uh, Sadducees. And John and Alexander were uh, two other leaders mentioned here, members of the, uh, of the uh, high priests, uh, the uh, chief priests, rather, and then... Um, as many as were the family of the high priests and the whole Sanhedrin's gathered together. Uh, and Peter then confronts them. We see that, and I pointed out the relaxed manner of Peter, 
The statement here is that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, or literally he's full of the Holy Spirit. And this is not the same kind of language or verbiage that you have in Ephesians 5.18, which is a command to Christians to be filled by means of the Spirit. Uh, different word there, it's the use of the word uh, plerao. Here it's a different word, pimplemi. And, it has, and it's always used prior to uh, someone making some kind of uh, verbal statement. And so uh, we, we see that it's somewhat akin to inspiration, uh, the work of uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring prophets and apostles in the writing of Scripture. And so Peter is uh, full of the Spirit, the content of the filling here indicated by a genitive in the Greek, and he begins to uh, challenge them in terms of what they've seen. And he said, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed to a helpless man, by what means uh, by, uh, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So once again, he makes sure that it's Jesus who gets the credit. He didn't do it. John didn't do it. It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, and again, whom God raised from the dead. So he has this, this whole congregation here of 71, none of whom believe that resurrection from the dead is possible. They are presuppositionally committed to the impossibility of the resurrection from the dead. And he very calmly said, this is the one God raised from the dead. And Peter operating on divine viewpoint, as we'll see, knows that they know that Jesus rose from the dead. They may be denying it. They're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness, Romans 1, 18 and following, but they know, and they've, they know not only uh, from what they've heard, but they know because they tried to cover it up. So they have a certain intellectual, experiential knowledge that Jesus did rise from the dead, but they're not giving it any meaning, uh, the same meaning that Peter does. And then he quotes uh, in verse 11 from Psalm 118.22 that this is Jesus, the stone which was rejected by you builders. So he's taking Psalm 118.22 and he's applying it to Jesus as the chief cornerstone uh, that had been rejected, concluding, verse 12, that there is salvation in no other. Again, we see this claim of exclusivity in the Scriptures. Now, this is what just drives unbelievers nuts, all kinds of unbelievers. People who are not Christians just hate the fact that Christians come along and say, Jesus is the only way. That's what the Bible teaches, not my opinion. It's not John Calvin's opinion. It's not Lewis Berry Chafer's opinion. It's not any other Christian's opinion. It's what the Bible states. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is a bold statement of exclusivity. Now, either Jesus meant what he said, in which case anyone who claims to be a Christian needs to, needs to affirm that is true, or he didn't mean what he said. And if he didn't mean what he said, then let's just take this whole book, toss it out in the garbage can, let's go have a party. Because you can't deny the core of Christianity just because people in the world don't like it. And if you read some of the things that are being said today in reference to this day of prayer um, called the response. It's going to be held here in Houston at Reliance Stadium on Saturday. You see how it just irritates and angers and frustrates those who aren't Christians, those who don't like Christianity, and they just get just their, their irritation and anger and resentment just goes off the charts because they don't like the fact that Christians say that there is only one way. In fact, the other day, it was interesting, I read an editorial, and, and there are a lot of things I found obnoxious about the editorial, uh, written by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times on Sunday that was a um, uh, bit of a eulogy on John R. W. Stott. And John Stott was an Anglican evangelical, and I use that term fairly loosely 
Now, when you get out there and you try to study and define what an evangelical is, it's one of those words that today it's almost has come to mean nothing because uh, different people have used it and abused it so many different ways that it, it has um, it's lost a lot of its meaning. But technically, the word evangelical refers to somebody who believes in the good news of the gospel. Evangelical comes from the Greek uh, verb evangelizo, and that means to proclaim good news, to announce good news. And so an evangelical is somebody who is to, going to announce good news. Well, the good news of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah promised from the Old Testament that he died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead the third day. on the third day. And by believing in him and him alone, we have eternal life. And we have forgiveness from God of all of our sins and that that can never be eradicated. And it is on the basis of faith and faith alone and that Jesus told his followers to tell everyone in the world this good news. Now, that's a very simple core meaning of evangelical, but it has come to mean other things. Now, if you go to a website, um, and I always forget this guy's name. What's a... The sociologist, uh, hmm? No. Uh, so Christian, he's, anyway, I'll get, it'll come to me in a minute. And he has done all kinds of surveys, and he's got a nine-point definition of the, what? Barnum, Barnum that's right, Barnum. Uh, go to uh, Barnum, what is it, Barnum.org or something like that, just George Barnum, you can Google that. And you can come up with this. And he's got um, nine specific things that you have to believe in order to be an evangelical. So according to him, there's about 20, million, 20 25 million evangelicals in the U.S. If you look at NBC, they basically make evangelical a political term. If, you're a, if you call yourself a Christian and you say you're an evangelical, it doesn't matter what you believe, then you are one. And so they they just hardly give it any kind of meaning whatsoever. And so they say there's 115 million evangelicals uh, in America. But most of those, in, in various other polls, most of those have uh, uh, have been uh, at, or then there's a follow-up question. You consider yourself an evangelical? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus is God? No, I don't. Do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? No, I don't. Well, you're not an evangelical. <laughs> But at the very core of the meaning of evangelical is this claim of exclusivity. Well, John Stott believed in that. I mean, he, he was uh, conservative, at least in that. But in many, many other areas, he was, he was liberal. And he was also a held to replacement theology, and he was not, a, not pro-Israel, and he was not a Zionist. In fact, he was an anti-Zionist. And so you have this, uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote this editorial, and he, he talks about how wonderful John Stott was instead of all those blowhard evangelicals like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and he lists a number of others. And whatever we may think or disagree or agree with them, the one thing everybody bad that he mentions, everybody he mentions in that article as bad is a hardcore supporter of Israel and a Christian Zionist. And everybody this guy pointed out as good in the article holds to replacement theology and was pro-Palestinian and, and, and held to some sort of socialist view of, of, uh, of economics. And that's not biblical. And, and John Stott didn't believe in the inerrancy or in the infallibility of Scripture. It may surprise you, but that's not part of British evangelicalism. Uh, C.S. Lewis didn't believe in inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture. Uh, no British evangelical believes in inerrancy or infallibility of Scripture, just not part of their theological package. So you can't really call them evangelicals in the American sense of evangelicals, and John Stott would be, only be considered an evangelical in a, uh, a very, very broad, loose sort of uh, sort of definition. And so... This claim of exclusivity, though, just irritates this guy, Christoph. I mean, he is just, that's what makes these, these Christians so narrow-minded, such narrow-minded bigots, is they just think that, that 
Christ is the only way. And then go online, find, he has a follow-up to that article and read the comments after that if you, if you want. Then you'll get a sense of how, how much hostility there is in this country to Christianity and to the claims of exclusivity that Christians hold. I mean, it's, it's just, it, there's bitterness there, there's resentment, there's anger, there's some of the most hostile stuff I've ever read about Christianity. If, if any Christian said, any Christian politician or overt spokesman said things like that in public about Islam, the liberals would probably hang us from the nearest yardarm. I mean, it just shows the double standard that's out there. So, but it's his claim of exclusivity. And yet when you look at the scriptures, I've pointed out so many times, you go back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, God says there's only one way to live in the garden, and that's to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's only one way to survive the flood at the time of Noah, that's to get on the ark. There was only one way into the ark. You take it forward a few centuries and you come to... Uh, the exodus of the Jews from Egypt, and there was only one way to survive the tenth plague, and that was to put blood on the doorpost. And there was only one way to put blood on the doorpost. It had to be a lamb without spot or blemish, and it had to be sacrificed a certain way, and then the blood put on the doorpost. God says there's only one way, and it's my way. I'm the creator. I have the right to determine it. But man in his rebellion wants to say, no, I don't want that. I want to do it my way. So this is where you get this hostility, and the Sadducees are presenting uh, this hostility in this uh, environment. They are just, uh, they can't believe that, that Peter has the courage, the, the spiritual and moral conviction and courage to stay in there and calmly confront them in this manner. And this is where we pick up in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, and this is the Greek word parasia, and it means there's there his openness, their confidence, their boldness. I mean, he knows that he has the truth. He he's not defensive. He's going to present the truth as clearly as he can, and he's not going to worry about uh, what the consequences are. He's not going to get irritated with them. He's just very calm, and so we're told now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men. And this just reflects the type of arrogance that was evident among the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin at that time. If you didn't go to the right schools, the rabbinical schools, and if you hadn't studied under the right rabbis, and you didn't believe what they believed, then you were just a backwoods uh, bumpkin that didn't know enough to come in out out of the rain. And that's how they looked at Peter and John because they did they were they were not, they were untrained. And what that this means, in terms of the, the uh, word that was used here, that they were unlearned and untrained. The word there for untrained is translated in some other uh, translations as ignorance. It's the Greek word idiote, which is where we get in English the word idiot. And it didn't mean idiot in Greek. It had the idea of someone who was on his own or self-taught. He wasn't trained in the right schools. He's self-taught. So they had this elitist uh, religious group, the the Sanhedrin, and they're uh, looking down at Peter and John as untrained and uneducated, and they marvel at them, though. They are just amazed at what is going on. And here it's an, it's an, and what we, interesting in the way Luke is writing this is he uses these imperfect tenses all through here. And it's an imperfect tense which indicates continued action. So it's not just like they went, wow. So that all through this as they're listening, they are just continuously being amazed at the fact that these men who they consider to be uh, untrained, ignorant uh, fishermen are utilizing the scriptures in such power. And, of course, that's because God the Holy Spirit is empowering them, but then they have the conviction of the truth of their position. And then we read the verse at the end of the verse that they realize that these men had been with Jesus. And then in verse 14 we read, and seeing the, men who, the man who had been healed. So uh, we could translate that as a participle, present participle. It's when they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, 
they could say nothing against it. Literally, they had no reply. And again, it's an imperfect tense here indicating they continued to have nothing to say. They, they, as Peter is making his statements, they have no reply. They're amazed at what he is saying, and they have no answer to his arguments. Now, if you can't answer the facts that the opposing side is presenting, what do you fall back on? You fall back on emotion. You fall back on anger. You fall back on intimidation and bluffing, and that's exactly where they end up going in this encounter is they're going to uh, intimidate them. And we'll see this down in verse uh, 18, that they're going to be call, call them in and command them to just stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But we have a few things to talk about before we get there. So they, they see this man standing there. Now, here's the issue for us, is you've got a, boil this whole thing down, what you have here is a, is a witnessing encounter. You have Peter and John who are explaining the good news about Jesus Christ and his claims to be the Messiah and his resurrection to a group of people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah and who refuse to accept the fact that he rose from the dead. And so it gives us a great example here, time to stop and look at how they are handling this, the, the witnessing situation, to look at these, at the mechanics here, and especially when we bring in the fact that they're dealing with evidence. Now, that's an important aspect as we talk about the gospel, is what is the evidence of the truth of the gospel? And it's not just a matter of what is the evidence, but how do you use the evidence? Because We're supposed to use evidence. God did not work in history in a vacuum. There is clear evidence, and the Scripture talks about that evidence, and God provides evidence because Christianity, um, despite what some people want to say about it, is not just a blind leap of faith into the dark. Belief is not empty. This is what modern man has come along to define faith and to oppose it to science. But faith is knowledge. It is knowledge based upon fact, and you believe the facts. And every scientist believes certain facts. But now we introduce another issue, and that's this word fact. What makes a fact a fact? And is there such a thing as just an independent fact, an autonomous fact that just sits there on its own uninterpreted? Is there such a thing as a fact that doesn't immediately and simultaneously with its, with its apprehension or with your awareness of it also have interpretation with it? Or does fact exist apart from interpretation? And I'm going to say there's no such thing as an independent fact. Every fact is interpreted and is viewed and assigned an interpretation from the very beginning. Uh, I'll explain that as we go through this material. So what I want to look at here is how do we use evidence and what, it, what kinds of response can we expect from referring to and using evidence. Now, this gets us into a, an area that is very important within our understanding of Christianity, and it's the area of apologetics. And apologetics is sometimes misunderstood, but it is extremely important and it is commanded in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Peter writes, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, sometimes we wonder if those who revile us are ever ashamed. That's another issue. We want to look at this word that's used that is translated, be ready to give a defense. 
It is the word, the Greek word apologia. It is a word that comes out of the legal language, the language of the courtroom in ancient Greece. It means to give a speech that is defending a proposition, defending a position. It's used in the courtroom of a, making a legal defense of a case. It could refer to the legal case offered by the prosecution. He's making a proposition that so-and-so is guilty, and now I am going to give you the evidence and the reason why this person is guilty. It could refer to the what we'd refer to as a defense attorney who is going to say this person is not guilty, and now I'm going to give you the reason why I claim that he is not guilty. Now, in a courtroom situation, you have a different setting than you do, different realities than you do in witnessing. In witnessing, there are other factors. In a courtroom situation, you have uh, two different sides. They present their case, and the jury is in a position, hopefully, of a neutrality or as much neutrality as you can get. There's not necessarily a position of neutrality on the part of the unbeliever. We'll get into that in just a minute. But the command here is that we need to give a defense. So if I ask you, why, do you, why are you a Democrat? And you say, well, I'm a Democrat for these reasons. You've just made an apologetic. If I ask you if you're a conservative and you say, yes, I am, and these are my reasons, you've just given an apologetic. You've given a defense for why you believe what you believe. If I say, why are you a Christian? You say, well, because the Bible says so. That's an apologetic. Well, why do you believe the Bible? Well, now you're getting into apologetics. You're get, simply giving an answer to the unbeliever for why you believe what you believe. And so there are right ways to do this and wrong ways uh, to do this. So we see that under the first point, just understanding what apologetics is, it has to do with the broad topic of being able to give an answer, to be able to explain in a logical, coherent manner to people why you believe what you believe. Now, when you are engaged in apologetics like anything else, when you're explaining why you believe what you believe to someone who doesn't believe that, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we have to get into methodology. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A right thing done in a right way is right. So we have to make sure we're doing a right thing, which is explaining, which is explaining the gospel in a right way. So that's what we're looking at. How do we explain the gospel, how do we present what we believe to someone who doesn't believe it, uh, and how do we do that in a right way? Now, within the realm of theology, we have a branch of study of this that is called apologetics. A lot of people don't understand necessarily understand apologetics. It's a broad field of study. It's not identical to studying Christian evidences. Christian evidences may be a subset of apologetics, but it is uh, apologetics is simply covering how do you communicate the gospel in a clear way to those who need to hear it. So anytime anyone is making a case for the gospel, then they are engaged in apologetics. Anytime you're explaining the gospel to somebody, you are truly involved in apologetics. Now, another aspect of apologetics has to do with effectively communicating to someone. Now, we've all had experiences where we've tried to t tell somebody the gospel, and it didn't go very well. And we feel frustrated afterwards, and we, we uh, Monday morning quarterback what we did and how we said it, and, oh, I should have said this, and they said that, and I, I really would have been more effective if I had done that or done this other thing, and that's just part of the learning process in any area of life. But it gets down to the whole process of communicating truth in a cross-cultural situation. Now, let me explain that a little bit. You, as a Christian, are part of a culture a Christian culture. You think differently than any unbeliever thinks. So you have to present what you're saying in a way that is going to, to the best of your ability, make the gospel clear. Now, this is 
not excluding the role of the Holy Spirit, which is very important and is part of this. Nobody's leaving that out. God and God the Holy Spirit have their role, and you and I have our role. We can't do the Holy Spirit's role. He's not going to do our role. We have to be effective, as effective as we can in our role, and he will take care of whatever uh, shortcomings there are. That's not a basis for excusing irresponsibility, but it, recognizing that we have different roles. So we have to communicate the gospel to people. Not only is there a cross-cultural difference between the way we think as a Christian and the way unbelievers think, but you may be an American taking the gospel as a missionary to another culture, to people who have grown up in another uh, in another ethnic group, another country, another language, and they think differently than Americans think. And you can't expect them. This is really hard for some of you. Some of you will never get this. I know it. But people think differently. And no matter how loud and long you try to explain things to them without understanding where they're coming from, you don't get through. You just don't. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One example that many of you are familiar with is the case of Don Richardson. Don Richardson was a missionary with New Tribes Missions. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, he and his wife went to Papua New Guinea. They went back up into the into the uh, jungles, and they made contact with a Stone Age tribe called the Sowies, S-A-W-I. And they built their huts there, and they made their home there, and they began to learn the Sowie language, and they began to learn how to communicate to them and how to, uh, how to talk and how to live with them and to build relationships and a basis for trust with the Sowie people. And it finally got to the point where they had become conversant enough in the Sawi language to where Don believed he was at that point where he could tell them the story about Jesus. And so he goes through the story about Jesus and his, how he's betrayed by Judas and how he's arrested and he is uh, tried by Pilate and he's going to be crucified and he's crucified and he dies for the sins of the world. And he thinks he has done a masterful job of making the gospel clear. But the problem is he hadn't done his homework on the Sawi culture enough. And he didn't realize that within their frame of reference, within their human viewpoint way of thinking, the greatest thing that a person could do is to, betray, is to become so ingratiated to somebody and so trusted by somebody, and then betray them, and the best thing they could do is to betray that person, and it costs that person their life. And this is the highest ethical value in that culture, is to betray somebody. So when they, first time the people heard the gospel story, they thought Judas was the hero, Jesus was the chump. And and it just floors them. They've got to go back and, and, and learn more and study more and get to know people. And, figure, and, and for a long time, Richardson said, how can I make this clear? They, their, their values are so, in Texas we say catawampus, they are so backwards, they're so twisted, they're so reversed that good is bad and bad is good. And when we just make the facts of the gospel clear, what they're hearing is just the opposite of what I want to communicate. And then what they discovered was that uh, that th- this how, how do they ever became, uh, gain trust with somebody? I mean, if the greatest thing I can do is to uh, become so trusted by you that I can then betray you, how do we ever establish real trust among people? You're always looking for somebody to stab you in the back. That's your expectation, so you don't believe anybody. And... <clears throat> the Sawi people as a Stone Age tribe never, I mean, they just had very uh, primitive tools and very primitive means of survival. So they never had tribal groups of more than just eight or ten people. And then they would split off. And, and, and of course, you had all these different sub-clans, uh, I guess, or family groups or clan groups. How would you ever gain trust? How could you ever go to somebody else and know for sure that they weren't betraying you? 
And the way they did that, the way they would establish a treaty, because these old groups were always at war with each other, the way they would establish a treaty is that one chief would take a newborn baby, his newborn child, and would give it to the chief of the other tribe. And that newborn baby was called a peace child. And Richardson said, that's what God did for us. He gave us his son as a peace child. And when he retold the story of Jesus as the peace child that God gave to us, it suddenly God was able to use that within their culture to break down their barrier of understanding, and the people then became Christians just one after another, just a tremendous, uh, tremendous story. And they, in turn, were able to become missionaries and take the gospel story to other of those tribal groups. That's one case illustration. Second is something that I experienced when I first started going over to the former Soviet Union. Back in the early 90s, uh, there were several men who came out of Baraka Church and other doctrinal churches who went to, um, who took the opportunity when the wall came down to go over to the, uh, to Russia and to some of the, and to Ukraine and Belarus and to look for opportunities where they could go and establish a church and establish a Bible institute or Bible training to take the gospel to, uh, these former, uh, Soviets who had, who were trained on atheism and uh, and Marxism and Leninism and had not heard anything about Christianity whatsoever. And so there were a lot of different missionary organizations that were going to the large cities of, of uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow and, and uh, Kiev and uh, Minsk and places like that, but there weren't too many who were going to the medium-sized cities, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand people. And so that's where they were going. And so they set up their operation eventually in Mogilov in Belarus. And uh, I went over there in January of 1994 and uh, had a lot of contacts with them there. Jim Myers was part of that group. And one of the things that they did initially was they hired some people who had very little Bible training, very little background, to translate a number of uh, booklets into Russian. The trouble is the translators really didn't understand enough about English idiom to truly understand the nuances of the stories and illustrations that were being used in those books. And they didn't know enough about what the Bible taught to be able to convert this into their own language in a way that that accurately reflected what was said in the English. And on top of that, you had additional problems with the poor Russian synodal text translation. Uh, for example... In the Russian text that had been, it's like the King James Version, it goes back into the uh, Middle Ages, they had translated the word righteousness with the Russian word pravda, which means truth. Now, there's a huge difference between the concept of righteousness and justification and the concept of truth. And so whenever you would talk to somebody and you would use the Russian translation, things really got confused. We had another example in 2000. Dr. Meisinger was just here, and I and uh, Bruce Bumgardner went over with Jim Myers, and we taught a pastor's conference. Uh, we were over there for about four weeks. We weren't all there at the same time. Uh, George, taught in the, George and I were. George taught in the morning. I taught in the afternoon. Or maybe it was the other way around. I can't remember now. But when we got there, what was really strange was this side of the of the room were Ukrainian speakers, and they didn't know Russian, maybe a little bit, but not much. This side of the room were Russian speakers, I mean, not, not Ukrainian speakers, Kazakh speakers, and on this side of the room were Russian speakers, and they didn't know any Kazakh. So I had one guy standing here that we had hired to translate, and he had had some you know, he had had a resume with some background in translating for various uh, Christian preachers and theologians who had come over there. And then we had uh, the wife of the pastor, Jana, and she taught, she, she translated into Kazakh. So that made it really interesting. I'd, have, I'd say a couple of sentences, this guy would translate and then she would translate. But this guy had never translated for anybody who really knew anything about Christianity, the Bible, or theology. And I would use words like justification and reconciliation, and, and this guy was like 
I don't know how to say that in Russian. Vocabulary is part of communication. And, voc- and if you talk to anybody who speaks, who let's say they're bicultural or tricultural, they'll tell you that when they shift from one language to the other, and I see this personally, their personality changes, their culture changes, and they think differently because they're thinking within, in a certain sense within the worldview of that language of that culture. And that's really an interesting phenomenon. So when you go and you teach on the mission field, you to make sure that you're, what you're saying about the gospel is heard intent, in the way that you intend it to be heard, you have to understand what the, where the minefields are in the target language and in the target culture. Because you may be saying things like, like uh, uh, Don Richardson thought he was communicating the gospel clearly, and what they were hearing was that Judas was the good guy. You may you may not be heard well. So uh, there's there's um, an, part of this issue of apologetics is learning how to think and communicate in terms of your target audience so that you can, in the best of your ability, communicate it uh, correctly. If you're going to be a missionary to any country in the world where you have to go cross-cultural, you have to study and understand those people. If you're going to just think about it. Some of you are sitting there going, no, you don't. You just say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let me tell you, if you're going to be an engineer or you're going to teach computers or computer engineering or anything like that, you've got to do the same thing. It doesn't matter what the knowledge content is. You You have to understand another culture before you're able to effectively communicate to that other culture. So... Part of apologetics is just that. It is learning how to effectively give an answer for why you believe Jesus died for your sins. Now, within the context of apologetics, a question comes up. There's a lot of debate as to how to use evidence. On one hand, you have a group of people who are what what are called evidentialists. They believe that if you just give people the evidence that Jesus is God and that Jesus rose from the dead and that the Bible is true, that that's all a person needs, and they'll believe it. Now, there's a, some, I believe there are problems with that approach. On the other side, you have a group that are called presuppositionalists. And presuppositionalists understand that because man is fallen, he's got a spiritual agenda in terms of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so that, the presuppositionalists would say that has to be taken into account. Now, for teaching purposes, I'm making these very, uh, I'm creating stark contrasts here. In some cases, it's hard to see the differences, but, but these are the basic, where the lines are basically drawn. But really, when you look at the two camps, the two groups, the two approaches, the bottom line is, really, what's the ultimate authority? As a Christian communicating the gospel, are you going, how are you going to validate truth, the truth of God? Is there anything higher than God? No. If God says, I am truth, are you going to appeal to a higher authority to establish his truth? No. He's God. He is truth. So you can't appeal to a higher authority. Now, if you approach from an evidentialist viewpoint, their assumption is that if you give a logical, reasoned explanation then that should make the gospel, and people should believe it because it's logical. Or if they're an empiricist, if you give the historical validation, then that's what they need to know. A presuppositionalist would say history, facts of hit. The problem with both of those approaches is they're treating facts as, as if they exist in pure neutrality. And in the devil's world, no fact exists in pure neutrality all facts are immediately interpreted in some sense. Let me give you an example. Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God or about God is manifest in them. In other words, Paul is saying they know God exists. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them externally. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. The things that are made are evidence of what? Of God's existence. See, the presuppositionalist isn't saying it's, it's apart from evidence. He's saying it's how you use the evidence. You've got to realize that the evidence here is the creation, and the, but the evidence, the brute fact, doesn't exist. It's immediately suppressed by unrighteousness. They have a presupposition. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood. See, that's a knowledge concept. It's known. It's known in one sense of knowledge. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, see, Paul is saying the unbeliever, the atheist, knows God, but only in one sense, only in sort of an academic, intellectualized sense. Because they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, in the last few minutes, I'm going to hit some really heavy stuff, and then we can come back and cover it again next time. So in this case, what we see is there's evidence. That is the creation. We also have an interpretation of the facts of creation. And as a Christian, you look at those facts and you interpret it as something created by God, but as a Darwinist, you look at the same thing and you interpret it differently almost from the get-go because that's your frame of reference. There's a prior orientation that comes from a spiritual issue. Because it's not just about the facts, ma'am. It has to do with spiritual issues. So what we see here in these verses is that all men know God exists. But the unbeliever does not know God as God has revealed himself. That's really important. Let's think about that a minute. Every person knows God exists. But the unbeliever who rejects it doesn't know God as God has revealed himself. He knows God exists, but not as he ought to know God exists, not as he should know God exists because he's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So he has knowledge of of God in an intellectual or academic sense, but he has at the same time rejected that and turned his back on God. So... The unbeliever does not know God as he has revealed himself, or to put it another way, the unbeliever does not know God as he should. Now, those of you who've listened to Charlie Clough's Framework series know that it's, I just used an important word, didn't I? I used the word should, and should implies a value system. As soon as you use words like should or ought, you immediately bring in some sort of value system, and, and, and we call that ethics. So we immediately bring in, as soon as we say the unbeliever knows God, but not as he should know God, we're linking ethics with knowledge. That's usually not done, but the Bible connects the two. Knowledge is not morally or ethically neutral, or to put it another way in terms of our vocabulary, knowledge is not spiritually neutral. So as soon as we bring in words like should, we import these values of right and wrong into the discussion. Now, rebellious man in the human viewpoint wants to treat knowledge as if it's just purely ethically neutral. But that's not how God created knowledge. The knowledge of God demands a decision for or against. So what that means is it brings in ought or should also brings in another key word, and that's volition. Knowledge isn't volitionally neutral either. So what we learn from this is, number one, knowledge is not ethically neutral. Therefore, knowledge is not spiritually neutral. Third, therefore, knowledge is impacted by a person's spiritual perceptions or presuppositions, which is basically volition which is the fourth point, knowledge, therefore, cannot be divorced from volition. To know something as God wants us to know something demands a volitional decision, a choice. Now, I know this is pretty heavy, 
But this is why you get people, and, and, and where I'm going to go with this, I want to look at some examples like Thomas. Here you have Thomas, who's a believer. Jesus already made sure all the disciples are believers before he goes to the cross. So in John chapter 20, when, when uh, all the other disciples are saying, Jesus rose from the dead, we saw him. There's your evidence. But what's Thomas doing? Thomas is saying, no, I'm not going to believe until I can touch it, until I see he's a pure empiricist there. He's already a believer. Now, when he sees Jesus, that's the right use of evidence here. He believes in the resurrection before he even touches it. He, he doesn't need to touch the, the wounds. Then you have another character that comes along, and this guy is not a believer. He's positive to God. We know that because of where he ends up. But at the moment, he's confused being positive with God to being positive to religion. And he is out pharisaying the Pharisees, and he's trying to kill every Christian that comes across his path. And if you, if, if you were one of those who witnessed to him any time leading before Acts chapter 9, you would come away convinced this guy is going to burn in hell forever and ever because he hates Christianity. But what happened? Again, there is an evidentiary exposure of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Right use of evidence. And what that brings out is that even though he had covered up his positive volition toward God with all this religiosity, when he saw Jesus, he understood it all came together and he realized he was the Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And that's the Apostle Paul. But in contrast to those two, we had the Sadducees who are here in the room with, with Peter and John, and they've seen this lame man that most of them have known for their entire life as being lame, and when they see the evidence in front of them, they go, it's not what it looks like. Why? Because they've got a preconceived spiritual agenda of negative volition. Now, some of them may eventually be like Paul, and that may change. But what they're seeing at this time, just like some of the people that you've witnessed to and that I've witnessed to, is they're saying, I'm not believing that. It does, it's not a matter, bottom line of what I'm saying is, it's not a matter of giving them enough logic and rational arguments. It's not an issue of giving them enough evidence and knowing all these different lines of arguments. The bottom line is, you make the gospel clear. God the Holy Spirit works to also make it clear to them spiritually. But it's their volition. And they have to decide to believe or to reject the truth. And that's the issue. In, the problem I see with evidentialism, it puts all the weight on the fact that I've got to give the right argument. I can't give better evidence than Jesus gave. I can't give better evidence than Peter and John gave. I can't produce a more empirical defense of what I believe than what those guys did. And they were rejected. The gospel, uh, their presentation was rejected. And ours will be too. But the issue isn't how many people you can get saved. The issue is to be faithful in, def in giving an answer for the hope that exists. In other words, just basically, ex accurately, explaining the gospel so that people can understand what it is that we have said. And we'll come back next time, look a little more perhaps at evidence and the use of evidence as we see it in Scripture because God is not against the giving of evidence, it, but evidence is going to automatically be interpreted. Just think about Ahab. When Ahab saw the that stream of fire come down from heaven and just incinerate that altar that Elijah had set up and soaked. What was Ahab's response? Well, immediately he had the emotional response of fear, but it didn't change anything because he didn't want to interpret it the right way. It was his volition. It wasn't Elijah's fault. It's Ahab's responsibility. And that's what we have to learn. We have to give the gospel the best we can. God, the Holy Spirit, will use it. But ultimately, it's the decision of the other person. It's their volition. 
and they determine the course of their life by their volition. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, to make them clear in our own thinking, and that it might strengthen our confidence as we present the gospel and explain the truth to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.